My name is Matthew Carter, and I'll be your host for this episode of Faces in the Corner. My first memory of fear came in 1989, up the small holler of Laurel Branch Road of Marrowbone Creek in Pike County, Kentucky, known to locals as Marbon. My childhood home rests between the mountains with friendly neighbors and family lining the road. If there's a lesson you need to learn first in life, it's that all good things will certainly come with bad. About a quarter of the way up Laurel Branch lived our troubled neighbor Ford. He was a non-alcoholic with a proclivity for the wrong side of the law. Our family had a history of unpleasant encounters with Ford, so we made sure to keep our eyes on the road when passing his home. One night we received a call from my grandmother, who lived in the closest house to Ford. Thanks to the prevalence of police scanners in the 1980s, she told my mother that Ford had stabbed his wife Billy and set their trailer on fire, leaving her for dead. Their next-door neighbor had noticed the flames and called 911. So when the police arrived, they pulled Billy from their burning home, but Ford was nowhere to be found. The police suspected he had tried to escape into the hills via the head of the holler, where our home was. My father was at work, so my mother and my brother-in-law, armed with a pistol, walked down our driveway to view the flames and make sure Ford wasn't nearby. I remained home with my two older siblings. I remember we turned all the lights off in the house and sat in the floor of my bedroom, which had the highest window. My sister, that was four years older than I, and always looking to cause me grief, immediately blurted out, You know if he comes in here and finds us, he's going to kill us all. I didn't speak another word after hearing that because I was convinced that would be the only scenario. I remember a streak of terror hitting me when I heard our front door unlock, swing open, and I saw the lights flick on from down our hallway. Thankfully, my mother and my brother-in-law had returned. The phone rang shortly after, and it was once again my grandmother, but this time she informed us that Ford had been caught. The next day we went to my grandmother's home, but first drove a little further down the holler, out of curiosity. I stared at the still-smoking frame of the burnt-down trailer. I felt concerned for the condition of Billy, but also relief that Ford would no longer be around to terrorize Laurel Branch. After maybe a couple years, the remnants of that night were finally removed, and grass and weeds slowly took over, so I no longer had a daily reminder of that night. Sixteen years later, in 2005, I was a college student on a break between classes. My memories of Ford had long faded to the back of my mind, till an encounter with a stranger quickly brought them back. I don't remember how or why I began having a conversation with this old man, but like any elderly person in eastern Kentucky, he was curious about where I was from and who my parents are. That could seem nefarious elsewhere, but in small-town Kentucky, it's fairly normal. He knew of Marbonne, knew of my dad, but more specifically knew all about Laurel Branch. I had a dear friend named Charlie that lived up Laurel Branch. He said smoothly while puffing on a cigarette, but everyone called him Ford. He must have seen my eyes widen and my Adam's apple bob as I swallowed my shock. Did you know him? He quickly asked. Oh yes, I knew him. I don't mean to disparage your friend or anything, but my only memory of him was when he tried to kill his wife and burnt their trailer down, I replied. The conversation continued and he understood my young animosity towards his friend. He acknowledged that drinking brought out horrible demons in Ford, and he couldn't control himself when he was drunk, but he also couldn't stop drinking. 
I wasn't convinced, but he continued to tell me about when he too found himself in prison. On the first day of his sentence, he was sitting in the cafeteria with all the other inmates. He told me how afraid he felt and how he thought maybe people would go easy on him if they knew he got caught selling drugs instead of a crime that makes you a target. He then told me all that fear and anxiety washed away in an instant when he looked across the room and saw Ford. He said, you know that feeling of relief when you're outside working in the heat, but you take a break to drink a glass of cool water? Well, that's how I felt when I saw my friend, and from that day forward, I called him Cool Water. Our conversation eventually ended, and I never saw that old man again, but I was left thinking about what he had told me. As a child, I had built Ford into a real-life boogeyman. I feared he was going to break into my home and kill me and my loved ones the night he tried to do the same to Billy. I witnessed the aftermath of his drunken rage in the form of a smoldering pile of ashes. It was hard to accept that he was just another human swallowed by addiction, that he had people that loved him, and that even in prison for committing a heinous crime, he was given a pet name by a lifelong friend. It's difficult when people can still find good in something you perceive as evil, but when it comes to a friend or family member, it may seem like you don't have a choice. Our first story is a tale of family always being there for one another, but how one person's demons can forever haunt a family in more ways than one. Growing up, I lived next door to my grandmother and my grandfather. And about fourth to fifth grade, I'm thinking, maybe sixth, my grandmother's uncle, Joe, moved in with them. Uh, the story behind that was uh, her uncle Joe was a pretty bad alcoholic, and most of his immediate family didn't want to have anything to do with him. So the only place he had to go was to move in with my grandparents. So when he moved in, he was basically kind of detoxing from the alcohol. So he was a pretty grumpy fellow by nature. He was a bad alcoholic. Um, it was to the point where my grandmother would not allow my grandpa to bring any kind of aftershave into the home because they had caught Uncle Joe drinking my grandpa's aftershave just to get uh, some form of alcohol in him. So he was he was pretty bad off with you know on the bottle. So I'm, I'm sure his withdrawal symptoms were were pretty hardcore, and I think that's what led to a lot of his, his aggression toward my grandmother. He probably looked at her as you know the person who wouldn't allow him to live his life the way he wanted to. Uh, and I recall uh, one morning we were all sitting around the table, and uh, my grandmother made gravy and biscuits. And I don't know if he was just having a particularly bad day or whatever, but uh, by the end of breakfast, uh, the scene was my great uncle Joe with a knife threatening to kill my grandmother. So my introduction to Joe was always one of fear. Uh, I was kind of afraid of him because I was a smaller child at that point, and he just seemed kind of like a loose cannon, you know. So, you know, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. Um, but when you're a small child and you see someone just lose their mind at a dinner table and actually pull a knife on your grandmother. Oh, traumatic is probably an understatement. I didn't know what to do. It was one of those times where I was too young to really understood the gravity of the moment, but I didn't quite get it. I didn't know why he was doing it. And later on, that's when my, my grandpa explained to me after Joe passed away that he just had demons. You know, he was, he was trying to kick alcohol because when he moved into my my grandparents house they were hardcore pentecostal i mean they were you know no drinking no you know basically no fun 
And so he went from a lifestyle where he could sit around and drink his cares away to a home where he wasn't really wanted and then he couldn't drink. So I think he just snapped. And it's, I can still recall, like in my mind, the visual of him just grabbing that knife and saying to my grandmother, I, you know, I'll fucking kill you. You know, as a small child in a Pentecostal household, number one, you never see anyone pull a knife. But number two, you don't hear, I'll fucking kill you. Well, that was the that was the event that really kicked off my issues with Joe and why I fucked with him so much because I didn't really like that he did that. And as a child, what are you going to do? It's not like you can sit down and have a conversation with him and try to get to the root of why he's acting that way. All you know to do is just fuck with him and try to run him off. But it didn't work. Over the course of the years, while Joe still lived with my grandmother, we started to have a little fun with Uncle Joe because Uncle Joe would just basically come out to eat, go stay in his room, and he didn't have really any interaction with anybody. So me and my cousin and my stepbrother at the time decided that we were going to start fucking with Uncle Joe a little bit. So we would wait till really late at night. He always slept in the main back bedroom of my grandmother's house. They never really had an air conditioning unit, so during the summer months, they would always open the, the screen windows and to let the cool air come through and whatnot. So we would always climb up on the hill behind his bedroom. Uh, McDonald's used to put out these little Nickelodeon toys in their Happy Meals, and there was this one microphone that would change your voice to, to different sounds. So we would sneak up on that hill behind his bedroom with that microphone, and we'd say things like, Joe, this is Jesus, it's time for you to go, or Joe, I'm going to kill you, or, and stuff like that. And then it escalated to not only just sounds, but we got our super soakers, and we started spraying water through that uh, screen window. So needless to say, we fucked with Uncle Joe pretty hard. He kind of let it go for the first little bit, but then he started to let us know that he knew it was us. So he would you know, say things in passing, like, I know what you kids, and shit like that. The only time he would really say anything to us was when my grandparents were gone. So we used to play a lot of baseball and basketball out in the yard, which was in between my grandparents' house and my house. And if my grandparents were gone, he would come out on the porch and cuss us and tell us to get the fuck off the property and just yell at us and all this, that, and the other. So I didn't have a very good relationship with Uncle Joe. I always knew that Uncle Joe was kind of watching us from the door because my grandparents had wooden door and they had a diamond-shaped window in the very top. And Joe was a fairly tall guy. Uh, I'd say he was probably six feet, maybe six one. So he could look out that window. But what I recall seeing was just the top of his head. And Uncle Joe had a very distinct hairdo. Uh, he wasn't one for hygiene very much. I mean, he wouldn't come out of his room very often. So he had old white scraggly hair that just kind of stood up kind of like a cockatoo's hair. So we would always be on the lookout if we were outside playing um, to see if he was at the door. And that's when we knew that he'd come out and cuss us and all this. So the shenanigans continued. Um, Uncle Joe lived there for probably three to four years, maybe longer than that. Uh, I would spend the night with my grandparents and I would be terrified because I was always afraid that Uncle Joe would come in in the middle of the night and just get his revenge, you know, because he could have easily came in there and fucked with me the same way we fucked with him. There toward the end of his life, Uncle Joe basically just didn't come out of his room. 
my grandparents were taking food to his chair. And one morning, my grandmother asked me to go uh, get Uncle Joe for breakfast. And it was kind of an unspoken rule between me and Joe that I wouldn't cross the threshold of his bedroom door. So I would just go to the door and just scream, Joe, breakfast is ready. Well, that morning, Joe didn't really react. So come to find out, I was the person who found Uncle Joe dead in his chair in my grandmother's house. That was always kind of weird for me as a child. Uh, I never, that was my first experience with a dead body. I didn't very, I didn't get very close to it because I was pretty freaked out by the shit. But I do remember that being kind of heavy on me. I think I was just shocked because like I said, I'd never encountered a dead body before. And he really didn't look dead. I mean, he was just slumped over in his chair. He looked like he was really passed out. But usually when I would scream at him for breakfast, he would at least move or acknowledge it. It was really weird for me to be in that home for the next week because I remember, you know, them coming in to remove the body. Now, mind you, I'm in the home when, you know, the coroner comes, makes sure, yes, he's dead. They remove the body. And to be honest with you, I don't really recall any form of funeral service for him. I don't know if they had it, but I know I didn't go to it. And I was not forced to go to it because my grandma and grandpa both knew about the relationship that the grandkids had with Joe. They didn't know the extent of the torment we put him through, but they knew we messed with him a little. So they never forced us to have any kind of interaction with him. In fact, they encouraged us to not have interaction with him because they both knew that he was a loose cannon. I mean, he was, you know, that was back in the day when mental health was not, you know, in the forefront. Nobody really thought, oh, does this person have mental health problems? We just chalked it up as a cranky old alcoholic who's just pissed off with his lot in life. And, you know, there was probably a lot of mental health concerns there. I mean, I'm sure. Over the course of time, you know, the memory of Joe kind of left, I guess. And so did my grandparents. They moved from their old home to Menifee County down around Cave Run Lake. So my dad had the bright idea of buying my grandparents' house. So we moved into that house. And I made it abundantly clear when we first moved in that I was not going to sleep in Uncle Joe's bedroom because that shit gave me the creeps. I always kind of felt like a weird presence in that home, kind of like uh, some tension in the air. Uh, It was always just super strange. And then that's when I started seeing Uncle Joe. I would be outside working in the yard, and this was years after he passed away, and I would look at that door, and I would see that white cockatoo hair just looking out that window of the door at me, watching me. And then I would turn around and be gone. I could always feel that presence in the house, like he was always roaming around through the house at night, just kind of watching over things. I would always hear like someone walking through the house. I kind of had a feeling it was, you know, something nefarious. But at the same time, I also realized that that house was old as shit. The, you know, the quality of the craftsmanship of that house was not the greatest. So I figured maybe it was just, you know, normal boards creaking and cracking and just settling and whatever. So, you know, I would hear things during the night that would always freak me out a little bit. Luckily, I never saw the figure of Joe at night. Most of the time when I saw Joe was during the daytime when I was outside and I would see him in that, that doorway. If I would have spotted Joe at night, 
in that house. I'd have lost my shit. I'd have been out of there in, in an instant. So, uh, you know, you could you could feel like just the presence, and you would hear things that would just bump and go on in the night. But as far as like spotting Joe, that was normally when I was outside looking at that door because that's usually where he would post up to kind of keep an eye on all of us. And I know what he was doing. I mean, he was doing that to make sure we weren't fucking with him in the back because we gave him hell a lot. I mean, we would run through the house just screaming and I'm sure being an old man who's trying to kick alcohol and knowing that your immediate family don't really want you around, let's add three little shitheads on top of it and I'm sure his quality of life there toward the end wasn't great. It was always a very uneasy feeling, so much so that uh, I went to live with my mother. It wasn't just because Uncle Joe. I mean, it's not like Uncle Joe ran me out of the house, but that was a, a main contributing factor because it was truly eerie and creepy all the time because I knew that I put Joe through a lot of hell while he was alive, and I just felt that uneasy tension all the time. Like There was always something creeping around the house late at night, and that if I was alone in that house, I was never really alone. For a 12 to 13-year-old kid, that's some heavy shit. You know, if you're there by yourself and you're thinking about, oh, there's a damn ghost in the house with me. You know, I spent a lot of time outside when I was home alone. I didn't like to be indoors with the ghost of Uncle Joe. I don't know if anybody else ever saw um, Joe the way I did that I know of. They never really told me anything about it now a lot of the family would give me hell over it because i would tell them you know i you know i was outside i looked in the window and i saw joe's crazy cockatoo hair and they were like oh yeah uncle joe's come back to get you it's what you get i mean it was it was a running joke for a long time like oh are you in, are you all right in there are you too scared to sleep are you afraid joe's gonna come get you and like you know it was all fun and games to them it fucked it was freaky you know that was some freaky shit for me I guess he just wanted to pull the ultimate prank on me. You know, like, you fucked with me while I was alive, and I want to fuck with you for the rest of your life. And I always just felt that he was always there. So it just made me realize that I was a little too shitty to Uncle Joe, and he he ultimately had his revenge on me. So... Most people are not going to initially believe something without perceiving it themselves, be it receiving bad news or hearing something they don't think could ever happen. Something that doesn't fit within their reality. They don't want it to be true, so they trick their brain into not believing, in hopes that it won't truly manifest. Experiencing fear and trauma firsthand can often cause one not to believe what they experienced, and the burden of proof falls on those helping them heal. Sometimes trauma is passed down and lingers for generations, burrowed deep inside someone, or perhaps something. This is a story that comes from my dad's childhood, and uh, my mama was always known as a feeler. She could, um, she was like an old mountain feeler. She could feel energy, and and uh, she had really good, uh, really good predictions when it came to when people were gonna die. And, Anyway, um, I think a little bit of that rubbed off on my dad. 
when my dad was 10 years old in 1990, uh, my, my papa and my memaw decided to rent this double wide down uh, Ignorant Fork and Pound, which uh, which is the right-hand fork uh, of Bold Camp. And uh, they were at the very, very end of, of Ignorant Fork. And uh, just <laughs> despite the name, my papa thought it was a good place to raise kids. And, you know, there was a lot of land and the rent was cheap and... They hauled a bunch of their furniture down there, and they moved right in. Well, not weeks after they moved in, my dad began waking up in the middle of the night. You know how double wides are laid out. They usually got two or three bedrooms, and um, the middle is usually where the kitchen and the dining room and the big open living room are. My memo and papa's bedroom was at one end, and his bedroom was at the other end, and he had these big bay windows in his bedroom. My memo worked as a hairstylist, and she would get home pretty early in the evening. Uh, my dad would ride the bus when he'd get out of school to, to get home, and he'd get there before them. But my papa would be working for for the strip job, and he wouldn't get home until real late sometimes. Well, um, that left them, my dad and my memo both there alone a lot of times. Well, well, and he wouldn't get home until really late. So my dad kept waking up in the middle of the night, he didn't know why, and he wasn't getting good sleep. And one night he woke up, and he looked out the window, and he saw something glowing out the window. And keep in mind, this is way back in the holler. This is way at the end of the holler, and uh, and there wasn't really they didn't have neighbors directly around them, and um, it wasn't Papa. Memaw's already in bed, and well, he saw this glow, and he went and looked out the blinds, and there there was this glowing, disembodied figure floating right outside his window and he jumped and screamed because he didn't know what to think of and he ran to my mama and she was just like well honey you should you can just sleep in here with me now but there's nothing out there there's nothing to be afraid of and well so he went and slept with mama and the next day he decided to that papa and mama decided to put him back in his bedroom because they thought he was making shit up well they put him back in there the next night and he woke up, and he saw a full-bodied individual standing right out the bay window, staring in at him. And boy, did he jump. He he didn't know what to do, so he ran screaming back to my mama, and she was like, Honey, you know, I don't feel nothing wrong, And uh, but I understand you shook up, and my papa wasn't having any of it. He didn't, he didn't believe in that shit, and he always said he didn't. He'd never seen anything. He, he was the type of person who... You'd have to show him something for him to acknowledge it and and believe it. Um, the next night after that, they put him back in that room there in his bedroom across. And this night, my papa wasn't coming home. He he was he was uh, staying up in West Virginia working. An axe decided to fly right out from under my dad's bed and and it nicked right into the wall. And this disembodied well, at this point, it wasn't. It was like a full person or figure was standing right in his room, and he was paralyzed with fear as it got closer to him, and it grabbed his hand and tried to take him out the window. He finally got up the courage to break free and run across the house to my memo. My, she screamed bloody murder, too. Here comes the figure walking across the house. And it comes into there to Mamaw and Papaw's bedroom, and she sees it. 
and they both see it and they both scream bloody hell. They're both paralyzed with fear and my memo grabs a cross and throws it at the thing and it disappears. And that that really, you know, solidified the fact that something was not right. My memo told my papa she wouldn't have any of it. She would not be staying another night in that in that house after seeing that. They decided to move out the following weekend they they stayed with family for a couple days, and they started to get their stuff out. And uh, They found their trailer for rent right off of uh, South Fork of Pound there, uh, in this trailer park right on the road. And they decided to go in, and everything felt fine. But he, my dad started waking up and seeing this figure again. They didn't know what was going on or why it followed them there. One night, it tried to drag my dad away again, and... Boy, he, he got up the courage once again to run across the house, and this night my papa was home. The figure followed him all the way to their bedroom, and all three of them saw it. They didn't know what the hell was going on. My, they, they both got the hell right out of there. There was this old uh, feeling woman that lived down the mountain um, who, who was you know more in touch than maybe my memo was. They asked her to come by and uh, to talk with her about what the hell was going on and why this thing was following them, and... She walked all around the trailer. She started feeling around, and she stopped in my dad's bedroom. You know, they had a lot of old furniture that was given to them by by family members and people in the community. And um, she put her hand on the post of his bed, and she said, "Holy shit! This this bed frame is an old piece of American chestnut wood from the 1800s." And she said that it belonged to somebody down on uh, South Mountain, which is, uh, you come back down into Virginia from Kentucky, there's a, there's a road you can take south of Pond Mountain that can take you all the way to the Brakes Park. And, and it's always been known for very mysterious things going on down there. She said that, well, this belonged to, to a witch that lived down South Mountain. She cursed this whole area uh, because some outlaws tried to tried to rape her and she cursed everything in her house they tried to rob her too and this bed frame was part of that deal and it somehow wound up in possession of one of my family members and and my memo and papa's hands and they decided not to burn it so they took it out to the old uh, home place where where my memo was raised and stuck it in this old barn to this day, you can go up there and and uh, see this old bed frame, and it, buddy, it gives me the heebie-jeebies thinking about it. When you get near it, you you can see and hear things. I swear. Anyway, that's the story of the haunted bed frame. <laughs> Terrorizing my dad and my memo and papa.
Some people are dying to experience something scary, and they'll go looking for it. But what happens when it reveals itself, if it's more than scary? As someone lucky enough to be allowed to see it and survive, fear isn't a zoo, your monsters aren't caged. Sometimes thrill-seeking ends up being more than an adrenaline rush. Let's cut to Hazard, Kentucky and see what it has to show us. The scene is Hazard, Kentucky. I was in high school. I'm not sure what grade. I don't think I was driving yet. We were still piling in the cars and going to the next town to get Taco Bell because that was one of the most exciting things to do at the time. But we also like to get scared. And we had heard about these haunted train tunnels in Hazard. I remember people talking about feeling like someone's like grabbing their shoulder or like picking at their bodies as they're walking through. And so we went to go check them out. And it's two tunnels that run parallel, one on the right, one on the left. And uh, there was rumors that one has uh, more activity in it than the other. There are also cemeteries on top of these tunnels. So that's the scene. That's where we're at. So a bunch of teenagers were piled up in this car. We pull up. It's nighttime. The only thing we have are candles. Because who the fuck takes candles to go walk through a, t- a train tunnel? Really? But we're... we're we're strapped with, with candles. Uh, didn't really have cell phones with flashlights at the time. So it's dark. Never been at this tunnel before. And the idea is that you walk through one and you come back through the other. And um, so we start through. We try to light these candles. And if you've ever been through a tunnel, you know there's a, a draft coming through. So we can't get these fucking candles lit. And the ones we do get lit are like burning wax all over our hands. And we're trying to walk on railroad ties and like watch where we're going. It's pitch black. You can't see in front of your face. We're walking through and there's nothing really to see. It's just all concrete, black. Still, you're just looking at the person's back in front of you. And we're just, we're walking in. And by the time that we get halfway through... You can't see any light from the outside either way. You There's just nothing. And this is like, it's an L&N railroad track. And there's still trains that come through there. So being in the middle, it's like, holy shit, what would, you know, the worst thing would be we're in the middle of this fucking track and a train comes through. So we're in the middle. And the next thing you know, we think we hear something. And, I mean, you can hear trains in the distance, so it's like, holy shit. Is it coming this direction? Is it in this one? What the fuck are we going to do? Are we going to run through this fucking tunnel or what? Somebody puts their ear to the rail to hear if a train's coming. And there wasn't anything. And so we're like, well, fuck it. We'll, we'll We'll just go on, and then if something else happens, we'll just get the fuck out of here you know we're just going and we didn't really know how long the tunnels were but they're at least half a mile 
So we keep on. And the next thing you know, it sounds just like a train is right behind us. And it's a beam of light. And we all cut and ran, dragging our hands down the side of the cement walls. Couldn't see anything. Luckily, there's cutouts, you know, that people used to run into and duck into. And so we're all just scratching our hands across the side to try to find these. And there's two and three of us just wedged into these, thinking that a train is literally just like on us. And then as soon as we all get to where we need to be, there's nothing. There wasn't anything. It was dead silent. We were in the middle of this tunnel where there was no light. It wasn't anyone's flashlight. This was a large beam of light, like a front of a train. And the sound of what a train would sound like if it was right behind you. How did we all scatter just instantly and then there be nothing? After we catch our breath, we walk out the tunnel. And then we... (laughs) Once you get through one, you've got, I mean, to get back to to your vehicle, you've got to go through either the one you just came through or the other one. And we were like, holy shit, if that just happened in this one, what the fuck is going to happen when we walk through this other tunnel? Luckily, we made it through back to the car No more uh, weird instances happened after that. And uh, recently I went online just trying to find out more about the tunnels. And someone else had reported that they'd get halfway through the tunnel, it's pitch black, and then it's like a huge beam of light and sounds just like a train's coming through. And it's nothing. I've always been like into the idea of there being like paranormal stuff in like another realm I don't think I ever like was closed off to that idea it's like you know these realms are just like onions and some of us are just existing in different layers at different times and like this is just the one we're in right now and can like make sense of and maybe sometimes those like layers are thinner in certain places or overlap That's it for tonight, folks. If you like what you've heard, hit the show notes for the pre-order link to our companion zine, which, if you order one, will be hitting your mailboxes very soon. Don't want a zine, but want to give us a love offering instead? Our Venmo and Cash App links are in the show notes as well. Faces in the Corner is brought to you by Boss Babies LLC and through the generous support of our sponsors and listeners like you. Faces in the Corner is produced by me, Tom Sexton, 
Matthew Carter, Levi Funk, and Daniel Pujol, with original music by Daniel Pujol. Thanks again for being with us, and remember, when you lay your head down tonight and you cut off all those lights, may the faces you see in the corner be ever in your corner. Sweet dreams.